0: Also in Isaiah 61, verse 1, if you still have your Bibles there. Thought I'd read some more from this passage. It says The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, to, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And I'm just gonna stop there in the middle of that verse because that is what Jesus did when he read this in, the, uh, in Luke chapter four. He stopped reading in the middle of a sentence and it was rather notable Because the next part would say the day of vengeance of our God. And it's almost like Jesus is saying that he is here to do these things, to restore, to heal, to build up, not to tear down. But there is a day of vengeance. And that it's almost like he was saying that was going to be a different dispensation, so to speak. We are still in the day of grace, we are still in a day when grace and peace are multiplied, as Peter said. That is the message of the gospel. And in, in the account of Luke when Jesus read from the scriptures and it said he closed the book. He closed the book, and when I read my Bible, I like to look for symbolism, and maybe I see things that aren't really there sometimes, but in Revelation, it says the books were opened, and there was one book in particular, the book of life, and in Revelation 5, it, it talks about that no man was worthy to open. The book, neither to look thereon, save the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David hath prevailed to open the book. And I believe that book was the book of life. Jesus represents the ability to bring life. He's able to open that book. And there's probably a lot of other things that were going on with that. But it said the eyes of all the people that were there in that synagogue were on Jesus. And in a sense, that symbolizes where we are today in our uh, day of grace. And in most uh, Christianity religions, our eyes are on Jesus. We're waiting to see what the next move is and what he will do. And so that symbolism kind of came forth to me in our day and time, because we need to look to Jesus. And even as in, in Revelation goes on to talk about it, it says the people of God will say, how long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? We are waiting and watching for the revelation of Jesus. In reality, he is the centerpiece of all of history for those whose minds are toward God. For a message this morning, I would like to invite you to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We know know the first Corinthians chapter 11, that sounds a little familiar, that's where we have the headship veiling teaching but 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 6, I'd like to read these, it says, would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly and indeed bear with me for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy for I've espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste version to Christ. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve, through his subtlety that your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which we have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. For I suppose I was not a wit behind the very chiefest apostles. But though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things." I don't know if you followed the thoughts of Paul there completely. But I'm thankful for some things I see in verse 3, and that is the, the concept which he speaks there about the simplicity that is in Christ. And that's, that's the title of my message this morning, The Simplicity of Christ. You know, we think of the prophet Jonah. He had a pretty simple message. He just went out and said, In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And he may have said more than that, but that was what was recorded. And it wasn't even good news. It was, it was not what we call the good news of the gospel. It was, it was bad news. But maybe that's why it was effective because it seems like we're often attracted to bad news. That's what gets our attention. How long would, how long would a news organization last if they only produced good news? And I think there was someone that tried to do that, and it didn't last very long. In reading the epistles of Paul, you soon see his burden and his concern for the purity of the gospel and for truth and for the people. He had a love and compassion for the people, not just that the truth would go out, but he wanted it to take root and have effect in, in the lives of real men and women. And I had to think, you know, as, as young children, as we grew up in our homes and in our churches, and we probably had early memories of, of church life in which we would uh, it would bring to mind where are those above us, our authorities, whether they were parents or preachers, that they would express their concerns to us about things they would see, and maybe our responses, our response was such that we weren't as worried about it as them. But I think as parents and as any of us who are in a position to teach or, or be above others, you know, we're kind of torn between uh, um, telling people what they have to do or, or just letting them figure it out for themselves. You know, there's kind of a balance there because you want to prevent uh, harm and yet there's value in letting them learn on their own in some regards. And, you know, the bumps and the scrapes that we go through in life, in, a, in our childhood, that helps us gain a personal perspective and to where, you know, if we only go by what somebody told us, even though they mean well. Um, and so there's, I see a balance there. We, we may not always strike the, the right combination or ratio, but, you know, as, as our tendencies are as humans to to kind of be loose and carefree in our younger days, um, we all have stories of things we probably did wrong or should have done better. And so I suppose that, that there needs to balance that out. There should be uh, an overdose of concern on the part of our elders sometimes to to help that equation, but, you know, I see Apostle Paul with a concern, and when... He would uh, do all he could to guard against any additions or subtractions to the the pure truth of the gospel. And he speaks further on in this chapter about the the false apostles, deceitful workers who would come about, and they would pervert and distort the true gospel message. We sing that song that says... um, Assist thy servant to proclaim the gospel message plain and pure. I have to think of um, what we sometimes refer to as the plain folk. I don't know if that still describes Mennonites or not, but that was a term that we would attribute to maybe the Other cultures, the horse and buggy people, the plain folk. And when the world saw that simplicity, that plainness, hopefully it also directed their minds to the simplicity of the gospel. And the gospel message plain and pure. Does it always work that way? Does the world always make the right equations about the things they see in our lives? I don't know. But the Apostle Paul says here, I fear lest by any means as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. And, you know, I think we often look at the story of Adam and Eve and we think, you know, why couldn't they have done better? Why couldn't they see that, Oh, you know, why were they misled so easily? And... We think, you know, if we were in that situation, we would have done better. We could have, we could have uh, been a little smarter. I've wondered sometimes if it would have helped in the case of Adam and Eve, if God would not have warned them that this, that they would have received this, uh, that, that, that Satan was gonna try to do that to them. Would that have helped? You would think it would have had to help if they would have been warned that Satan's going to come around. He's going to tempt you to eat of that tree that I told you not to. And why didn't God do that? But you know, we stand in a position where we are warned in a sense, in a much fuller sense than what would have been recorded there. And yet Paul still says that he fears we may be beguiled, even as evil was. So I think that stands as a warning. And it also stands that we need to trust God. He may not tell us everything, but we need to reach out in faith on that which we already know. Even if some other things come along that seemingly make better sense. So what is the thought or the concept that is found in this thing of the simplicity that is in Christ? Does it speak to you? Does it say something to you? And What is it meant to say? Is not the gospel message a somewhat of a pretty simple, easy to understand message and there's a a beauty in the simplicity of it that I think we need to look at. I think the concept of simplicity in Christ is a lot more, it goes far beyond just outward simplicity or plainness, you know, because there's always one more thing we could get rid of. And keep reducing our, our basic living as far as our lifestyle. And I'm not sure that's really what it means. I'm sure some of those things come into play when we, when we follow Christ. But I believe there's a theological simplicity here that, that is found in Jesus. You know, it's interesting sometimes <clears throat> to go through the epistles and to, and to look at all the times it's referred to Uh, The gift of God as a free gift is spoken of as a gift. A gift is normally it's free, but it often says the free gift. And so there's some redundancy. It emphasizes something that is already obvious. In the Gospel of John 4.10, I like what Jesus told the woman at the well. He said, If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that speaketh to thee, thou would have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. Jesus offered a spiritual water, a living water. He didn't offer some complicated drink mix or protein shake or concoction, but something as basic as water, the gift of God, and he compared it to something that is very essential, it's actually very abundant in our world, it it is just as essential as it is abundant. And when we think of giving a gift to someone, presenting them a gift, I had to think there's a couple elements in when we present somebody with a gift. And one is the element of surprise. And I'm not sure how many of these apply to God's gifts to us. But I think the gift of God can hold some of the qualities we naturally assume when we desire to give somebody a gift. And there are some surprising things in the word of God. I believe Jesus did and, and said some surprising things. And I believe that as we trust God and, and take him at his word, he will often bring surprising things into our life. Another, another aspect of, of gifts is that we like them to be hassle free. When we give a gift to somebody, we don't want them to have to go put batteries in it. So usually we'll take care of the batteries or at least provide them if if that's what the gift needs. We we want something that's easy for them to just realize the full benefit of a gift. There's a verse in Proverbs 16, verse 23 that I think illustrates this. It says, the blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow with it. No sorrow with it. A lot of times our own sorrows are what we bring about because of our lack of faith and so on. There are storms of life that come against us that strengthen us apart from our own doing. In verse 4, the the Apostle Paul speaks here of, of others who came along and preached another Jesus. They preached another spirit, another gospel. And I don't know what all that would have involved if we have the same influences that come against us in our day and time. I can surely imagine that would be the case, but I wonder if, if a lot of the, what was... Coming forth there in that early day was additions, additions to what had already been spoken. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians 4 6 that talks about not going beyond what was written, not exceeding the things that are written. And, you know, I think there's just a general uh, tendency on the part of man to complicate things and to make it complex and to take something that at one time was really simple and maybe not intentionally but it just, it kind of grows, it turns into something uh, much more complex than it ever was meant to be. And, and one, one area of this would be just our money system. You think of how money started was uh, just a way to exchange goods and services and it, it was probably somewhat of a simple thing how that worked but now you know you have just you have endless things that in the financial world in the banking world and all the terms you know you and we call money funds you know it's it's proceeds it's funny names we give stuff because this is all a web of 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 something that has just grown. And we call things capital gains. And there's this thing called a portfolio. I don't even, if you wanna lose my attention real quick, just start talking about a portfolio. But it has to do with our investments and all of that And, and just money, it just, no end to it. You know, when Jesus needed some money, he went, He went to the fish. He told the disciples to go catch a fish and he took a coin and that's how he took care of that obligation. There's probably a lesson for us in that. If you want to simplify your life, just get with Jesus. Um, If you want to complicate life, start to introduce sin. Start to introduce the works of darkness into a scenario and it gets complicated real quick real fast. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 33 it says, For God is not the author of confusion but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. If you want to know what confusion is James 3, 6 says, where envy and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Christ is the essence of simplicity. I think there's three ways in which Christ portrays that simplicity. And that is when he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Jesus made a way where there was no way. He opened up the way. He opened the gates like we heard of in our opening this morning. The gates were opened. It made it simple. He says, make the crooked straight, the rough places plain. The valleys be lifted up, the mountains be brought low. And that's God's desire to make a straight path. For our feet. I don't know if you've ever been hiking and, and you got off the beaten trail and you were in a situation where it was steep, it was rocky, and maybe you went to retrieve something. But it was such a relief when you got off of that off of that mountain, off that steep place, and got back on the level road. It was just that's where God wants us to be in our spiritual lives. I believe there's a contentment and a peace in the simplicity of Christ. In Isaiah 40, we looked at Isaiah 60 this morning, but in Isaiah 40, we'll read some verses here. Verse 11, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. That is a a picture of peace and contentment, of provision. Also John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door By me, if any man shall enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. When you think of what a door is, the door is a very simple thing. It's either open or it's shut. It's very simple. To enter in that door and be saved is the will of God and shall go in and out and find pasture. Now, I see that as freedom. He shall go in and out. It's like there's no restrictions. He can kind of move around and have freedom and find pasture. There are things to do in the kingdom of God. We don't just sit there on a chair. We we go about the things God intended us to do, just like the animals. They get out there. They don't want to sit all day. They like to get up and eat, eat food. And they go about their business and we give them a certain amount of freedom and allowance to, so they're able to do that and provide for our animals. And there's just, you know, there's, there's a picture of beauty when you see a field, a green field of animals resting in the field. And I like that picture. And the Bible uses those natural pictures that we see to explain spiritual truths the simplicity of Christ is mentioned is represented as well I think in what he said about being the truth I would like the truth of Jesus to be represented by what he said when he said I'm the chief cornerstone the cornerstone of truth and you could say Jesus has cornered the market on what truth is. Isaiah 28:16 says behold I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone a tried stone a precious cornerstone a sure foundation he that believeth shall not make haste most translations would say not be shaken or not be afraid not be disturbed by those who believe in that sure foundation and in Romans 9 verse 33 as it is written behold I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense whosoever believeth in him shall not be a ashamed so we learn a little more about this rock this cornerstone and we learn that it became an offense. It became a stumbling stone, that which was meant to be a refuge. Why? Verse 32, it says, Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. It was. The Lord's desire, Jesus' desire, that Israel, that He could have, have gathered them together, and that they would have been what they were meant to be. But as it was, Israel, um, they stumbled. They stumbled at something because I think it, it was it was just too simple for them. They had to, they had to believe that there was just there had to be more to it than this, and they did not have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, to simply believe the scriptures, the very scriptures that they adhered to in their, in their mind, in their knowledge. These, these things were read to them every Sabbath day and yet the Bible says they did not understand, they did not see it. Instead, this rock of Jesus became a rock of a fence. There's another way in which Jesus is a rock Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. What rock is he referring to? I think he's, he could be referring to himself, but you remember in that instant where he brought that up and that that discussion came about was when Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the son of the living God. And that is where Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church. I think he was referring to that confession of faith of Peter. That those that would follow, that would have the same faith as Peter, that was the rock, that was the building block of the church and of what Christ was going to build. And it is Peter who spoke of the lively stones. In his epistle, I might just turn to that, 1 Peter 2, 5. I guess rocks and stones were still on the mind of Peter in his writings. He says in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also is contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. And so this, com- this confession of Peter was very simple and yet it was profound, it involved very mighty things concerning what God can do. And we learn from Jesus in that account. He, he, he told Peter that flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father, my Father which is in heaven. <clears throat> you see, the gospel was not about the wisdom of words. Paul said this. He said, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. I think I'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19. 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And so on. You could read on down through here about this whole concept, about where is the wise, where is the scribe, where are all these people, Have God made made foolish the wisdom of the world and it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe, the foolishness of preaching. You know, I feel a little foolish sometimes taking on this job of preaching but it's only because I know that this is a little bit how God designed it. It's not that this is a real smart way in the eyes of the world to, to go about things. But of course, the world, they're very quick to talk about the things and to have speeches and, and great swelling words um, about the things they're interested in, about the things of the world. The Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block and under the the Greeks foolish. There's there's a lot of of ways of thinking of mindsets out there that, that do not readily adapt themselves to the truth of the gospel and the simplicity of the gospel. And as we would look into that and explore it, it's because God wants to uh, set this up to where the glory and the the power becomes very evident that it is of him and not of our own um, righteousness. You know, I think the Greeks, they were so smart, but... They were so smart, they couldn't see. Have you ever known somebody like that, that their minds were above the point that you were trying to make and sometimes it was the simple points that they were miss out on? You know, I wonder sometimes if this affects us in subtle ways to where... Yeah, we understand that it's, uh, salvation is by grace through faith. There's very basic things we understand as a child. In fact, the Bible says we need to come to him as a child um, to inherit the kingdom of heaven and so on. But are there things that we pursue in our intellect, in our knowledge that maybe crowd out the capacity we have to see and hear the things of God? and to hear that still small voice that the Bible speaks of. In Ephesians 1 verse 17, Ephesians 1 verse 17, and this is uh, a prayer of Paul and it's actually a prayer you could pray for yourself. It says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of your calling, that ye may know what is the riches of his glory, of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints. And it goes on down through there. But the spirit of wisdom, wisdom is, the wisdom of God is a spirit that that we access, that comes upon us, and it's of God. And through all that, we eventually come to the part where it talks about knowing the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. We talked this morning in our class about the, the thing of, of authority and so on in our world today. Jesus is the ultimate authority. He is above all power and might and dominion as followers of Christ, as brothers and sisters, we, uh, we have access to some of that authority that Jesus said, all power and all authority is in heaven and in earth is given to me. Are we living in, in that strength and in that power of Christ? In the book of Romans, verse 10, um, chapter 10, 3 through 10, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law that the man with which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead? But what saith it? the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart? That is the word of faith which we preach. The simplicity of this. It is with the mouth that confession is made unto salvation. It is with the heart that man believeth. There's two basic ways in which the Word of God takes root and shows itself in our life. And you could say the teaching here in verse 3 is that righteousness is not something we go about to establish. Righteousness of God is something that we uh, submit to. It's something that we allow to happen. We let it happen. We submit to the work of God upon us. Look at all the times where we are told to let. Let this mind be in you. Let the peace of God ruin your heart and so on, submission. I believe the Lord wants each of us in a place in our life where where we say, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That was a Bible verse my parents put on their uh, wedding announcement. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. But this shows itself, I believe, in the way we approach life and in the way we fight our battles. Deuteronomy 20 verse 1, Deuteronomy 20 verse 1, and this pertains to fighting battles and it's something we may face. Sooner rather than later, if we aren't already. It says, When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies, and seest horses and chariots, and a people more than thou, be not afraid of them, for the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be when ye are come nigh unto the battle that the priest shall approach and speak unto the people, and shall say unto them, Hear, O Israel, ye approach this day to battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint, fear not, and do not tremble, neither be afraid, neither be ye terrified because of them. There's a lot of commands in Scripture to not be afraid, to not have terror. Thou shalt not be afraid of the terror by night, nor for the air that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness nor for the destruction, the waste of the noonday. And you could go on down through that, Psalms 91. It's like I heard one time somebody said, we fight our battles not for victory, but from victory. From victory unto victory, his army shall he lead. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. We have received the spirit of the world, the things that are freely given. And again, in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 6. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge them that teach, that thou mightest charge some that teach no other doctrine, that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions, rather than godly edifying which is of faith. So do. Now the end of the commandment is charity, out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned, from which some have turned and swerved aside unto vain jangling." The the simplicity of Christ versus the complexities that we often bring about on ourselves, the endless genealogies, the things that minister questions, right? For our rejoicing is this, that the testimony of our conscience that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. There is so much that speaks of the basic truth and the simplicity of the gospel Matthew eleven twenty five 25 says, and this is a, a prayer of Jesus. He says, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. He revealed them unto babes. So in a sense, we are babes in Christ. We grow in his grace and we mature, but we still receive of Christ as a babe that trusts in his provider. There was a story that Jesus told, and this was, wasn't just the story, it actually happened. In Matthew 15, there was a woman of Canaan, she was a non-Jewish woman. She desired of Jesus that she would heal, that her daughter could be healed of a devil. And she had a revelation. She had faith, even though she wasn't of the Jewish faith and all that background. And because of her faith, she came to Jesus and she desired that her daughter be healed of a devil. <clears throat> well, um, it's recorded that Jesus answered her not a word. He almost ignored her, but she persisted and she, she kept going forward. And, that, and that's, what, that's what we do if we have a revelation, right? We, we don't let things get in our way because we're assured of the things we know. And finally, the disciples said, you know, let's turn this woman away. She's crying after us. She's, she's hindering us. Well, finally, Jesus spoke to her and he said, I am not sent but under the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, Jesus is saying, you know, you don't fit the category. You don't fit, uh, you're trying to change the rules here. And yet she persisted. She came to Jesus. She actually came up to Jesus and and laid her hands. And she just said, help me, Jesus, help me. And Jesus said, it is not me to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. In essence, he was calling her a dog. Now, how far would you get today in society if you started saying those kind of things? But, you know, this woman had faith. And she saw... Things that even the people that should have seen these things should have seen. And she said, the New Living Translation of this says, that's true, Lord, but even the dogs are allowed to eat of the scraps that fall beneath their master's table. Jesus said unto her, A woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee even as thou wilt. We see the simplicity of Christ. He just solved that situation right away with a few words. Do you see what faith does? Do you see what a revelation can do for us? It it can break down the barriers that we are facing. And I believe, I believe it was when Jesus faced his darkest hour in the in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was these kind of things that kept him going to realize there was these people out there that was counting on him. <clears throat> First Corinthians 1.17 says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. If we think the keys to the kingdom are You know, our intelligence, flexing all these uh, worldly wisdom. Paul says that is a false gospel. It it may be that we have corrupted our minds from the simplicity that is in Christ when we go down that road. I had to think to the story of David. And he was in a battle. He was facing a... A situation where he said oh that I could drink if someone would give me to drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem which is by the gate of Samaria was it Samaria I forget what gate it was but uh, apparently he was in a in a situation where he was thirsty he wanted water Jesus said we need to come drink of him that he would give us to drink of the water of life freely. And in David's situation, he had three mighty men that broke through the enemy um, camp and came back with that water. And David did not drink that water. He did not feel worthy of the water. And I, I looked at that and I thought, you know, I think that's how we we might view ourselves in the sight of God. When when we see the gift of that water of light, it produces in us a sense of unworthiness that we should not even drink of that water. So I hope this morning we can gain a glimpse of the provision of God and the simplicity of, and the essential need of that basic need that we have for eternal life through Christ. Let's build on that idea, on that truth and pursue God with our whole heart, mind, soul and strength. Let's stand for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for the truth of Your Word and for making it a blessing to our hearts, to those who come to you in faith and receive of the well of the water of life. And Lord, we pray that we would be counted worthy as you have instructed us to do, and yet carry with us that sense of humility, love, and compassion to serve in the ways that you would call us to serve. I pray your blessing on each one and whatever particular circumstances or needs we bring here today and meet those needs by your divine power and strength and may you grant us the peace that passeth all understanding.